Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and today's show is going to be puzzling, but in a good way. That's because my first guest today is A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a fabulous new book. It's called The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles from from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. Wow. Big goals there, AJ. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I am delighted to be here. Thank you, Pauline. So I guess before we go any further, what is the meaning of life? Oh, well, I don't want to spoil the ending of the book. <laughs> but, but actually, All right. I will I will spoil it a little in that part, to me, part of the meaning of life is curiosity and uh and trying to figure out the meaning of life. So it's a little bit uh, recursive. And that was the first thing that occurred to me when you invited me on the show, was that travel and puzzles have that overlap. They're both about curiosity. And I love curiosity. It's my favorite. Curiosity and gratitude are my two favorite emotions or drive. Well, so we want to talk, though, more generally about how Doing puzzles when on the road can enhance your trip. But before we get to that, I got to ask you, is there archaeological evidence that Neanderthals or our ancient ancestors engaged in puzzles? That's a great question. Well, it depends how you define puzzles. I mean, the first puzzle was, where do we get food? Uh, Who is our mate? (laughs) Sure. Uh, And when we solve those puzzles, then our brain gives us a little uh, reward. So that was sort of the origin of puzzles. Puzzles are recreations of that. We want to solve crosswords and Sudokus and mazes because we get that aha moment. They're almost the platonic ideal of these problems. But the, but yes, puzzles go back century, millennia. Um, riddles are particularly old. There is, uh, ah. uh, yeah, they seem to be cross-cultural. Every culture has them. Uh, sometimes the same riddles, weirdly. Uh, and uh, yeah, one of my favorite uh, adventures in this book was talking to a woman who is a professor who is the um, expert in riddle studies. And she uh, specializes in 10th century British riddles written by monks. And they are actually very saucy. They're very ribald, uh, which I did not <laughs> wow. expect from monks. Uh, but yes, so riddles are very old. Uh, you could say that but before we leave. Yeah, before we leave riddles, you said some cross-cultural boundaries. Does that mean at the same time we saw one riddle appear on one? quadrant of the world and, and then it appeared in another quadrant and you wouldn't have expected those people to know one another? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it, it is. Uh, it, it shows that our minds are uh, work in the same way. So, you know, there, there's huh. a very old riddle like, you know, what uh, what is always with you? So what is something that is always with you? And the answer is a shadow. and uh, huh. And that has been in various cultures. Uh, I see. Well, it could, so it's either our minds work the same way or we've all been visited by the same aliens. (laughs) I like the way you think. (laughs) From outer space, who knows? (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. So puzzles have been with us forever. And one type of puzzle, mazes, have been a spur to travel for centuries. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, mazes 
go back, uh, as you say, millennia, um, there's, uh, there's the legend of the first maze, which is, was in Crete, the labyrinth with the minotaur in the middle. Right. And you can still visit Crete. I actually went there with my family and it's beautiful. The maze doesn't really exist anymore, uh, but you can oh. go to the grounds of the palace where it was and you won't get eaten by a minotaur. So it's all good. Good, good. Uh, but yeah, and then there was this great hedge maze uh, uh, trend in uh, sort of the the 15th and 16th centuries, and those those some of those are still around. Uh, and I highly recommend when I was uh, when I was younger, I went to Longleat and Hampton Court in southern England, and they have these beautiful hedge mazes that are made of yew trees. That's Y E W trees. And it, I mean, it is, uh, it's almost like meditative. If you, you can either get incredibly frustrated going through these mazes, or (laughs) it's all about your attitude, or you can enjoy the journey. So it's a little, little metaphor for life. Well, why these were often built, if I'm, if I'm correct, on the grounds of great mansions. Uh, why, why did the lords of the manor want to create these mazes? What was the idea behind them? Well, uh, there are a few ideas. I mean, there is the legend of one maze which was uh, created by uh, a king so that he could meet his mistress without his wife knowing. Uh, <laughs> so there are very, but, but uh, it became almost a, a status symbol. So people would try to build hedge mazes that outdid the other. Uh, but again, uh, there is even going back centuries. There's this idea that it's a metaphor for life. That you, uh, you know, life is a puzzle, and life mm. is a maze, and you have to figure out the, your way out. And there's even a beautiful poem I put in the book about how you have to enjoy the journey. You have to enjoy getting lost in the maze. Right. And I guess mazes, in a certain way, are a metaphor for travel, for journeying, for going someplace unknown. What is the hardest maze in the world that's open to the public? Uh, that is a, it's a contested title, but uh, one of them is the right here in the United States, the Great uh, Vermont Corn Maze, which is in Danville, Vermont. And I went there for my book and it is hilarious. Uh, I highly recommend it. The owner is a delightful character who is gleefully sadistic. He is, because this maze is hard. It can take four hours, six hours to get wow. through. And uh, Are there refreshment stands along the way? No, or, you got what do you do? Or bathrooms? That, well, there are emergency exits. It's the only ah. maze I've been in where you, because people get so frustrated. I mean, he describes how people... You know, couples break up and uh, one father <laughs> abandoned his family. He was so frustrated uh, and he's, uh, he loves it. He thinks it's, it's delightful. So um, it, it is incredibly challenging and uh, he will give you hints. He's, kind, he's not that sadistic. So he is right. he's like a, a kind sadist and he will stand on this bridge and give you hints if you really need them. Uh, but it is, it's a hike. It is a hike. It took me a few hours. and. Uh, yeah, there are no refreshment stands. I think that's a good idea, Pauline. I think yeah, you should... he could make a little extra money. Yeah, that is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that. And in... No, go ahead. 
uh, sorry, and in in Hawaii, uh, you write about the pineapple maze on the Dole Plantation, and it has fourteen thousand varieties of vegetation. Is the vegetation what shields you from seeing where you're going, or or do they just plant different vegetation to keep you busy while you're looking at this maze? Uh, yeah, this one I actually did not go to. I I still want to go. Okay. Uh, I was the COVID prevented me from going on a couple of adventures, mm. and this was one. But uh, but from what I understand, yeah, it is partly the maze is itself is made from this uh, native Hawaiian. Uh, plants, but also along the way, it is something to look at. So that one, yeah, I mean, just look at it on, if you Google image it, it is just fun to look at. It's in the shape of a pineapple. Oh, wow. Well, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> beyond beyond mazes, it seems like, and tell me if I'm right, that this is a very recent phenomenon. It seems like one of the major the, or one of the newest tourist attractions I'm seeing in, in cities around the world are escape rooms. H- how did people come up with this idea and how long have they been around? They've been around uh, not that long. They're relatively yeah. new. They're, they're about 15 years old. And they're sort of a descendant of the MIT Mystery Hunt uh, in Boston, which every year uh, 2,000 people come and solve these incredibly hard puzzles. These are like escape room puzzles, but uh, to the nth degree. And right. um, and that's three days of just insane puzzle solving. And it inspired the first escape rooms, which there's there's a debate. Was it in um, was it in Hungary? Was it in Japan? But it was this idea of solving puzzles to get out of a room you have to usually it's about an hour and you have a bunch of puzzles and i love them i'm a big fan of escape rooms and um and i went to many by the way i will just say my favorite escape room fact is that uh apparently they're very popular with the nudist community (laughs) (laughs) which i did not see coming but uh wow yeah because uh you know you can go in you close the door and take off your clothes solve the puzzles, put on your clothes and come out. And, you know, nudists can't That's really go hilarious. to the movie theater. Uh, oh, but, my goodness. But, yeah, so escape rooms. And there's um, two two little uh, facts I wanted to drop about escape rooms. Is One, people go on escape room vacations. They go to an area and just do the escape rooms there. And wow. there's even a company. I love this company. It's called Room Escape Artists. And they offer tours of escape rooms. So they will take you take a group of people to Montreal for three days and go to just pack it a dozen escape rooms in three days. And in between huh. you can see the city and go to restaurants. So I love that room escape artist. And there's also um, a, a friend of mine created a, he works at Ted and they created the curiosity room in the Marriott. Mm. So you can actually go to a hotel room in San Francisco they don't lock you in. Like that's the good right. thing. <laughs> you can <laughs> that, that might be some legal problems. But the room itself is embedded with puzzles related to the city. So the, the San Francisco one has San Francisco well, based puzzles. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I've only done one escape room. We did one for my younger daughter's birthday. I think she was about 12 and we we solved it. We solved it nice. with with like 30 seconds to spare. Ooh, good for uh, you. 
but I, it, the whole place was set up like a creepy puppet theater. Uh, <laughs> I like that. That's a good theme. I so, hadn't heard of that. Yeah. So there were lots of puppets and stages and and pulleys for scenery and and you had things embedded in all of that. How often do these escape rooms actually reflect the destination in a meaningful way? Obviously, you just told us about Marriott. It seems like they're trying to do that with their escape rooms. Or is it just random themes? Like if you go to Montreal for three days... Are you going to get poutine in any of these escape rooms? I mean, are, are you going to feel or maple syrup? Is there is there going to be anything really Canadian about it? Or is it just random puzzles? I would say the majority are not themed to the location. Uh, there are differences, apparently, in areas. It's like Japan's escape rooms are much, much more. You have to... Um, spend time solving problems like Sudoku and, and uh, the United States has more like more physical challenges in escape room. Huh. So I would say though, there are some that are really themed to where they are. There's, uh, there's one famous one in Georgia, which is outside. So you really get to, you know, tromp around in the woods uh, and, and be a part of huh. the location. Uh, but, wow. but many of them are, you know, like, um, uh, mom, Could be anywhere. Yeah, they're they they you know they're submarine themes and horror themes and mummy right. themes and uh, yeah. and I but I am a big fan. I just think and it's only an hour and it's a great bonding experience. I think that's that's another link to travel is the idea of doing something interesting and new with other people really bonds yeah. you together. Absolutely, and one thing that definitely gets you to know a destination better through the puzzle are scavenger hunts. Uh, and your wife is uh, belongs to a, a great company for those, Watson Adventure. They have hunts all over the U.S. Tell us about scavenger hunts and travel. Yes, I am obviously a little biased, but I am a huge <laughs> fan. And these Watson Adventures, is uh, they put on scavenger hunts in historic places and in museums. And mm. you are not going out trying to find a physical object. You're actually looking in the museum. You're looking in the paintings for hidden things or looking at plaques on statues outside. And, and all of the clues are very witty and clever and punny and riddly. And I, I think it's a great way to get to know a location. So especially if you have kids and you want to take them to the, to a museum, you know, and they're all over the United States. You know, this yeah. is a way to convince them to go to the museum instead of just, you know, looking at the pictures. Let's do it as an adventure. Yeah. Well, actually, that's something I always did with my own kids. I would create scavenger hunts because really? I love museums. Well, we would we would go immediately when we went to a museum, we'd go first to the gift store <laughs> and I'd let them pick out four postcards mm. and then they would have to find those those paintings. Oh, that's so or, smart. Yeah, well, thank you. Or we would, you know, we would have a baby hunt, which is easy with baby Jesuses, you know, if it's a religious <laughs> museum. But, you know, we, we they would get points for who could find the most babies first or the most dogs or whatever. Oh, that's whatever. so good. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And it would keep them busy in museums. And they, they now go to museums for pleasure. So I think it worked. It worked. It worked. That yeah. is great. Now, before I let you go... 
there are also folks who go, who travel to attend conventions uh, or gatherings of people who are into puzzles, like jigsaw puzzles. What's it like to attend one of those events? I had a blast because we act, there's, yeah, there are many events where you can go and participate in these uh, weekends of puzzling. There's uh, the National Puzzle uh, League is like an old puzzle league. Uh, and they have a convention every year, I recommend. But my favorite was what you said, the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship. And it's in a small mm. town in Spain, Valladolid. I might be mispronouncing it. And it's once a year. And my we went as my family went as Team USA uh, right before COVID wow. hit. Yeah. With, this was one Did, of the first years of the, so the only reason we qualified was I filled out the form uh, and no one else did. <laughs> now it might be, but, but I do that's recommend. That's like being an Olympian. That's, that's impressive. It was a lot of pressure. And listen, I, I apologize <laughs> to my fellow Americans because we humiliated ourselves. We were, oh, no. we were not last. <laughs> I, I'm very proud of that. We were second to last. Uh, oh, we, we did who beat, was last? One of the hometown Spanish teams we were able ah. to beat. So it was, um, but we, despite the humiliation, we had a blast because first of all, like we were saying, it's such a bonding experience. I, you know, I met people from all over the world, Turkey and, uh, and Morocco and uh, Mexico, New Zealand. And, and you're doing this fun activity. And uh, at night you go out and explore the beautiful cafes and have the, um, I forget what it's called, but the chocolate with uh, with uh, churros. Yes, churros. Oh, they're oh, so good. I love that. Have... Oh, yeah. Were you all doing the same puzzle, or were you each doing different puzzles? No, no. the uh, The way it was set up is that you go into a uh, an arena, and everyone has a table every t every country, and you have eight hours to finish four relatively big puzzles, like one to two thousand huh. pieces. And I'll tell wow. you, Pauline, it was sad because Team USA, that's my family, we finished one and a quarter of the jigsaw puzzles. Oh. The victors finished all four puzzles in three and a half hours. So we were totally outmatched. Um, but again, we had a great time. Did they have different size teams? Was it everybody in teams of what were you, four? Yeah, they had different events. So you had a four-person event, but you also had a doubles event ah. and a singles event. And we entered them all and lost them all. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I also learned, I mean, one thing that you learn is in embedding yourself in these subcultures is, is the subtleties. Every subculture, you know, I almost was a little snobby and looked down on jigsaws, but jigsaws require subtlety and creative thinking. And they're all of these... Uh, these strategies that I didn't know about, like looking for the shapes. If you're confronted mm. with a blue sky, don't look for the colors, Try switch to the shapes. And they actually oh. would make different piles of here's a, here's a pile of three outies and one innie. Here's a pile of two outies and two innies. Uh, so it was just fascinating to see the, 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 yeah. the inside look. So what you're saying is if you were to return with Team USA, you would kill it this time because now you know the strategies. Sure, exactly, Pauline. Thank you for your <laughs> for your confidence in us, which is misplaced, but thank you. Well, <laughs> you kill it in your book, which is what's thank again you. called The Puzzler. And AJ is a, a well-known 
I think I, I heard you called an immersion journalist that you kind of let an obsession take over your life and then write about it. You're probably best known for the year of living biblically when you tried to live uh, by biblical uh, rules for a, a year, which is another great year. Well, uh, uh, read, I should say. Well, thank you so much, AJ, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. My pleasure. And thank you for spreading the love of travel, which I say is one of my favorite things because it stokes our curiosity and makes the world better. Absolutely. Our first interview today was all about puzzles, like mazes. This second interview is going to be about escaping the maze that can be the airline terminals of the United States and the world. Uh, to help us on that topic, we have Elaine Glusak. She is the frugal traveler columnist for the New York Times. Welcome back to the Frommer Travel Show, Elaine. Hi, Pauline. Thanks for having me on. Well, you wrote a fascinating article recently. It's it's titled The Democratization of the Airport Lounge, but I actually thought a better title for it might be something like uh, the many forms that airport lounges take nowadays. I was stunned to learn how many different types of lounges there are. Yeah, I think you're right. We could have called it just the proliferation of airport lounges. Um, there are so many. Um, I think most listeners will be familiar with the frequent flyer clubs that um, airlines like United, Delta, and American have traditionally had for their most elite flyers, their most frequent flyers. Um, but right. there's yeah, but there's sort of this newer um, iteration or generation. Um, many of them run or um, established by um, banks and credit cards. So if you have um, one of these super high-end credit cards from American Express, for example, their platinum card, you can get into their Centurion lounges, um, which are really, yeah. really deluxe. Um, Venture One, um, or, uh, sorry, Capital One uh, with their VentureX card just got into the lounge game at Dallas-Fort Worth. And uh, Chase is um, getting ready to open a couple for their Sapphire card uh, yeah. holders. And, and these aren't necessarily just places where you have a place to plug in your laptop, uh, maybe get a drink, maybe get some food, and, and just chill in a less crowded place. That's what they are at, at basis. But some of these lounges have gyms attached and, and have other perks. Uh, like I'd never heard that, that certain lounges will allow you to get a food credit at a restaurant, just a regular restaurant within the terminal. Yeah, that's um priority pass. They have a pretty creative, like I guess they use that term lounge um, broadly. You use creative right. license there um, when they say that they offer access to more than thirteen hundred lounges. Um, what they really mean is they offer special perks. If there isn't a lounge where they um, have access at a given airport, they will give you um, like a credit at a restaurant or maybe um, a chair massage at one of those. Um, airport spas. So you kind of get uh, a little something at nearly any airport you're going to go to. 
Right. And so you you did call it the democratization, which implies that you don't have to be sitting in business class or first class on the actual flight to get in these lounges. How are people getting into them nowadays? Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, you might have one of these um, super premium credit cards, which are expensive, admittedly. Like I think the platinum card is almost $700 annually. Um, But there are other um, clubs where you can just sort of pay as you go. So for $40, you might get into um, uh, a club called The Club. Um, Or, (laughs) yeah, or I think there's another one called Escape Lounges, which again, you can just sort of pay as you go. And it's a little luxury for people who, you know, maybe want to start off their trip with um, sort of a more relaxed experience than, you know, huddled next to the only electrical outlet, you know, on the floor, um, you know, while waiting for your flight. Right. Well, even and even the airlines uh, are now allowing, in some cases, people to pay a fee to use their club. You know, you just go up and you pay, what, $49 or $39. It really depends, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I, I actually recently bought that as a, as a gift for a friend of mine. I bought him like a, a day pass at United's Club, and I think it was $59. Um, I've seen, you know, some clubs go for as low as um, $27. If you use the app Lounge Buddy, um, you can, you know, find lounges that will allow you to sort of pay in as you go. Um, you know, and it looked like to me, most of them seem to run around that like $39, $59, range for, um, sort of one-time access. Right. Now I thought that Brian Kelly, uh, uh, the points guy who you quote in the article had the most creative use for a lounge. He said, if your plane is delayed or canceled, pay the $50, go to the lounge and use one of the agents in the lounge to rebook it. Because I guess those people are used to dealing with the really high end customers and they have superpowers, right? Or they at least have a lot more expertise. I thought that was a great idea, actually. Oh, yeah. And Brian um, Kelly is such a brilliant strategist um, and travels so much that he would know. Um, you know, those are, yeah, <laughs> he's, you know, he says like, if, if it's, again, it has to be an airline lounge. It can't be, you know, one of these third-party lounges. But if it's a United sure. or Delta, an American, um, you have agents there that, as you rightly pointed out, Pauline, probably deal with, um, the, you know, the most important flyers to the airline. So they're really good at um, making things happen and fixing your problems. Right. Now, so this is all the good side of lounges. The bad side is, with this democratization, I've been in lounges uh where it's been as crowded as the terminal uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, And sometimes there are lines outside of the lounges. Uh, How can you know that your 39 or 59 or high-end credit card is worth it nowadays, whether or not it's going to be such a mob scene in the lounge uh, that you want to use it? No, that's exactly the problem. I mean, and you won't know until you get there. And the problem... Um, that all these lounges are facing um, is is overcrowding. And, you know, it's all compounded by what's happening at the airport. You know, people have heard about terrible security lines. And so they're getting there early and trying to get to the lounge early. um, So much so that Delta has put a three hour cap um, on entry. So if your flight is at 
um, noon, you can't get into the lounge before nine. So you might be doing the right thing by getting there super early and making sure you're on time. And, and let's say you end up with loads of extra time. Well, you still have to right. wait till three hours ahead. And there's no, and there's no way to know whether they're going to make you wait in the hallway. Yeah. And I have a friend who pointed out with the Delta cap, it's it's really unfair because you have to you don't have to be in the terminal until it takes off. Usually you have to board 40 minutes in front of the flight. So really, they're only giving uh, customers a little over two hours in the lounge, even though they're calling it three hours. Nobody's in the lounge right up till the flight. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, so essentially you get two hours in the lounge. Uh, so you get two hours yeah. in the lounge, which is <laughs> angering high-end, you know, people who have uh, collected a lot of Delta miles. That's, right. that's uh, yeah. What is the, what was the most surprising thing you learned about lounges uh, doing this research? Um, I, I am impressed with the creativity of their offerings. I mean, uh, the new Capital One Lounge, uh, you know, you pointed out all the bells and whistles. Well, the new Capital One Lounge in Dallas has a spinning room, like it has stationary bikes. And I hadn't yeah. know, heard of that one yet. Um, of course, I also hope it has showers if you're going to use those before you get on your <laughs> I flight. Hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> but they are right. becoming more diverting, you know, and some of them have play areas for kids, you know, families with kids, which I think is really wonderful. Um, I think nothing is, is, is more important to a parent than having that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of your, the people you interviewed made the point that if you strategize it right, uh, you could perhaps eat and drink as much as you paid to get into the lounge. Uh, to my mind, that's the only reason to do it. Although I do, uh, you know, when I rarely get in them, I, I do like having an outlet that I don't have to camp out next to on the floor. But yeah, uh, I think I um, you know, the people that, you know, I talked to about this were basically, you know, people that aren't don't have that frequent flyer status that gets them in all the time, you know, told me that they would buy it as just like a, a very small luxury. You know, so much of the travel experience now is such a hassle that, you know, getting there a few hours in advance, you know, maybe having your little bowl of nuts, maybe having, you know, a glass of white wine and just, you know, going through your emails in sort of a relatively Zen space is just a it's a way to treat yourself that isn't like extraordinarily expensive, even if you're on an economy ticket. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Elaine, for appearing in the Former Travel Show. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. And that's it for this week's show. But we hope you'll listen next week. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. No.